This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. My name is David Kirk, and I'm chairing the session on cyber risk. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm an actuary, and I, and I work in risk. And for me, one of the challenges working in the risk area is the the operational risks, which we don't have the same level of training for. So, the last you know, five or ten years, I've needed to get more familiar with the operational uh, techniques and the terminology and the jargon. And then sneaking up very, very quickly is a whole new set in in, in the space of cyber risks that we need to to manage. So I've learned a huge amount from, uh, from my colleagues in the last week, and we managed to get them here with some um, other peers to talk about cyber risk as it affects South Africa. And this is not a talk on cyber security. Um, wh while you guys were coming in, we were having an interesting discussion on some of the more detailed technical points, but this really is about cyber risk overall, which cyber security is one component. Um, over the last week, we've had conversations with risk managers, knowledge directors, CISOs, underwriters, Everyone says they're taking the risk seriously, but there's a wide range of what guys are actually doing and and, uh, and how confident they are. And I'm also not convinced of the correlation between how confident individuals are in their cyber risk preparedness and what they're actually doing is all that strong. So hopefully we're going to hear some, some more from, from our panel. On our panel, we have Chris Harner on my left over here. He is Managing Director for Milliman's Cyber Risk Solutions Practice. He has 20 years of risk management experience across insurance, banking, and consulting, spanning across Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and the USA. He currently leads our cyber risk solutions practice, which is focused on assessing and quantifying cyber risk and the application of advanced analytics to understand the emerging risk. He also speaks, I think, four languages and has a wife from one of the countries that does a lot of the attacks. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying they're working as a pair to increase the risk and manage the risk, but uh, uh, Lisa Swain is a partner at Weber Wenzel. Lisa has extensive experience and expertise in all aspects of insurance and has represented and advised local and international underwriters, underwriting managers, brokers, and insureds. Lisa, thank you very much for, for joining our panel today. And then on the far side, we have Ryan from Kulvik. He is a cyber product champion at I2 Special Risks. He uh, has over 17 years of experience in IT security and risk management with in-depth knowledge of cyber insurance. So that is the panel that we have. I'm going to be leading them with a few questions, some of which we discussed, some of which we haven't. I'm hoping to get some nice, interesting discussions, and I'm really hoping for arguments. We will pause at about the sort of 40, 45 minute mark to get some questions from the audience. However, if you do have a desperate burning question you want, you want to get out, please stick up your hand. We will find a way to get to that. And if the questions aren't coming, although I suspect they will, we'll, I'll throw some more questions at the guys. Chris, I think, can we kick off with you? I think you've got a couple of slides to introduce a story of why we should care about cyber risk. you want to? Sure. You're going there. All right. Um, thank you, everyone. It's wonderful to be here back in SA. It's been quite some time, about 19 years, so a lot has changed. Um, but really wonderful to join you today. So I think what we want to start off with is a watershed moment, at least in the U.S. insurance industry, uh, for, regarding the NotPetya attack, that was a ransomware attack in 2017, and in particular, how that affected Maersk, which is the largest shipper in the world. So as, as you might know, 20% uh, of global shipping actually goes through Maersk. Each of those ships contain 18,000 containers, so quite a complex business. Uh, they operate in 76 ports around the world. 
And in uh, February of 2014, there was a change of government in Ukraine uh, from a pro-Russian regime to a pro-Western government, um, which really upsets Russia. Uh, and it is believed, if you, if you subscribe to, to, to this view, that the Russians decided to conduct asymmetrical non-kinetic warfare by creating malware uh, to punish Ukraine and to make Ukraine very undesirable to Western in investment. And so very clever, what they did was uh, created this ransomware and inserted it in a local tax software called ME-Doc. And that's interesting because if you want a virus to propagate very, very rapidly and do something unique to your adversary, in this case, just Ukraine, uh, that would be a good way to do it. And so, you know, everyone was downloading the latest version because they have to file their taxes. We all have to be compliant. And the local finance manager from Maersk did that in Odessa, uh, probably violated some policies, but if the big boss says, I want this on my software, it gets downloaded. And very quickly, the ransomware infected their operations in Odessa. And then within hours, propagated to Mumbai, Rotterdam, Algathiris, to the US, and basically within a couple hours, takes down 4,000 servers, 45,000 PCs, and knocks all of Maersk's operations offline. Um, including the ships. So all those ships are networked. Uh, those manifests are electronic, so now they can't unload or load any of those containers. And so the big aha moment in the insurance sector was the real exposure after the fact was not any cyber policies that Maersk had purchased, but what we call the non-affirmative or silent cyber, the directors and officers insurance, the E&O, the contingent business interruption, and so on. So that's kind of the context for, for opening up today. Chris, the, the, the story um, could have been much worse th than that. What, what really stopped it being the, the truly systemic event that some people are worried about? That's right. So I think, I think this part of the story resonates down here in SA because of load shedding. Um, <laughs> the one port that was not knocked offline was Accra in Ghana because there was a blackout. So no computers <laughs> were working. And that was, really, that was really the saving grace. Uh, Maersk had to employ 200 consultants from Deloitte, spend millions of dollars, literally purchase every com computer and laptop they could get their hands on. Um, but because of everything was so internetworked, which is why the virus propagated so rapidly and so violently and took them offline, they could get a mirror of uh, a lot of the fundamental parts of, of their servers. Um, so they thought, great, we'll just have the Ghanaian guy fly to the UK and bring that, a copy of that. And he said, well, I can't get a visa. So they said, well, can you get to Lagos? He said, yes. So the Brits had to meet him in Lagos and then, you know, go back to their uh, UK center for IT and get back up in line. But we think, you know, there's a real false sense of security. It cost them roughly $250 million to, to remediate and lost business and so on. Um, they had a quarterly loss of $260 million and then they're profitable again. And so there's a little bit of a false sense of security. Well, we got back up line 10 days, wasn't that bad. But I think if, if they weren't lucky with that blackout, see there's benefits to load shedding, um, then they would have been completely wiped out. Now, the, the other point you mentioned there is silent cyber, it's also called non-affirmative. Uh, Lisa, in terms of the, the, the wording of policies, is everybody happy with how they, how they word what is included and excluded from a cyber perspective? Or what are the risks around the, the wording the legal side there? At the moment... Um, okay, right, technologically retarded. At the moment, 
cyber policies have not necessarily evolved with the changing environment. Um, cyber insurance, although Ryan will speak more to it, is, is relatively new in that most businesses don't recognize their need uh, for insurance. And insurers um, have been, are not able to properly assess the risk that needs to be underwritten and how it needs to be underwritten. And insurers are notorious for using very antiquated language um, in, in all types of policies. And they haven't yet developed policies that, that will properly cover the risks that we are now going to start seeing uh, today. And the silent cyber is when a policy neither expressly excludes cover for cyber attack, uh, data breach, cyber risk, and doesn't expressly include it. And somewhere in the gaps, um, one can argue either that the policy should respond and cover the loss that has been suffered, or you, would, you could argue that the loss falls outside the corners of the policy. And unfortunately, it's, it's very much in the wording. And in relation to the Maersk um, scenario, uh, one of the companies, Mendeleev, um, who owns Cabris and Nobisco, was affected by the NotPetya uh, attack. And they sued their insurer at Zurich. They're in litigation with Zurich at the moment, so the case is ongoing. And their specific assets policy covered them for damage to electronic uh, data and systems. So specifically in 2016, they went out to obtain particular assets cover to cover um, electronic damage to or loss of electronic data because ordinarily electronic data is not regarded as property under an assets policy. And Zurich have argued, fine, we gave you that cover, but your war exclusion excludes cover entirely. And that comes down to the fact that the NotPetya attack was attributed to Russia and was regarded as an act of war. So. Zurich Insurance Company have raised the argument that the cover, that the policy excludes um, the loss, cover for the loss, on the basis that it was caused in warlike operations. That does sound to me like quite a big deal. And Chris, you've also mentioned the risk of you know, what will happen to the market if it is or isn't included. Do you want to just comment on that? I mean, this is this is a very interesting case. Um, However, this, I mean, there's too much money on the line, so whoever loses, of course, is going to appeal and is probably going to go up to the Supreme Court, and that'll take years. Um, but however the court decides this, if the court rules that insurers can enforce a war exclusion, uh, that raises fundamental issues, because one, one legal issue is, in a court of law, um, how do you prove attack attribution? Simply to say uh, the Russians did it because the FT and the New York Times did it, that's, that's hearsay. And, and you're never going to get analysts from the NSA or GCHQ who are going to come and testify on, on, your, on your behalf. So how do you prove that? But if somehow the court decides, yes, you can enforce this for this asymmetrical, non-kinetic warfare, um, then the question, as a blue chip, you'd have to ask yourself, why should I buy this coverage if the people of the greatest capability are intelligence agencies, and you're just going to say, well, the Chinese or the Russians or the Iranians, whoever did it. And the flip side is, if the court says, well, you can't prove attribution, we're sympathetic, we think the Russians did it, but you can't prove it in a court of law, or for whatever other reason, um, then the issue becomes, 
do companies or do insurers want to underwrite this risk? Do and reinsurers want to take this risk? Um, because again, if you can't exclu exclude that type of event, and, and the mayor's case could have been much worse in terms of the losses, um, we see there's a real dilemma and we just don't have an answer yet of, of, of how this plays out. I want to rope Brian in, in just a second. I think he's itching to, to, to add some bits here. Um, but Lisa, this is a, a US court case. Does it have any relevance to us in South Africa, how that goes? Yes, absolutely. Um, because policy interpretation is, is generally the same all around the world. Um, the, the, the issue with the Zurich policy is that you have on the one hand cover for damage and loss to electronic data. So exactly what you think would be covered. And then you have an exclusion. All around the world, exclusions in uh, insurance contracts particularly must be narrowly interpreted by the courts. So I think that this warlike exclusion might not, it, 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 it's, not a, it's not a bad argument, it's a very good argument. I don't know if it'll fly, um, especially in that you've almost got, you've got a contradiction in the policy. You've got an exclusion, a very wide exclusion on the one hand, and you have a very particular cover on the other. Uh, in South Africa, our courts tend to favor, find in favor of cover if they can. Um, and here you have a contradiction. It, it might not fly. The problem is, is that you're spending, not that I have a problem with it, a hell of a lot of money on legal fees. Um, to debate what should really not be debated, not have to be debated. So it would be better for insurers and boards of corporations to make sure that what is being covered is clearly being covered and what is being excluded or what is not required is clearly being excluded and clearly isn't required. Now, there have been a few things said now which makes me feel that everybody desperately needs cover. No insurer in their right mind would want to give the cover and you don't know how to underwrite it. Do you want to respond to any of that? Uh, so it's a great question. Um, I think the underwriting on the insurance side is something that we've seen evolve a bit over the last couple of years and is probably something that will have to evolve quite quickly over the next couple of years. I think there is a lot of technological advances that we can start to use to gain further insights. One of the problems we've had in underwriting the cover in the past is that to be dead honest, a lot of companies don't necessarily completely understand their, their IT and their cyber risk exposure and what sort of controls they should or shouldn't have in place. So it's it's kind of creating that awareness and that understanding, first of all, and being able to share that information. So we see a lot of cyber insurance currently underwritten from plain proposal forms, which are really high-level generic questionnaires, which Lisa's nodding her head. Some of those questions, I think, could be a little bit subjective. So if one went to court on it, I'm not really sold we'd have much of a leg to stand on. So I think we'll see the underwriting evolve to where you're actually having bots and stuff like that collecting evidence that you've got tangible information to work from. And that's going to become important in getting a good grasp of what the risk looks like, how the risk is evolving, and ensuring that cyber insurance is something which is sustainable over the medium to long term. What, what the building's made of. I mean, you, you may not be able to go into full detail, but what are the sorts of questions, what are the sort of risk factors that would change the risk profile for an entity looking to get cover? So I think ultimately it comes down to, to resiliency. So one of the big concerns there is on the cyber front is on the business interruption sites. When you're looking at something like a MERSC, when they're going completely down and they can't trade, 
all of a sudden the business interruption goes through the roof, the business has a reputational impact on that. So resiliency as to how quickly can you recover, what sort of policies and procedures and mechanisms do you have to get that business up and trading again is important. When you start considering the uh, potential data exposures, then it gets to things like, do you have encryption in place? What type of encryption are you running? What monitoring do you have to, to try and quickly identify that there has been a compromise that you can respond to that quite quickly? And while we're considering a lot of that in the underwriting, sort of from the underwriting perspective, we're also seeing great technological advances coming through. So you've seen in the past where you would have just had normal antivirus, where you're now moving to proper endpoint solutions like EDR, XDR, which is a lot more aware of what's going on around it and correlating different events and stuff like that to proactively identify an incident and then look to contain it. So I think it becomes a collaboration between getting more insights and IT technological advancements in trying to sort of curb and fight against the evolution of cyber attacks. So this is a very specific uh, question I had after having sat in a board meeting where the directors were talking about why they didn't take out cyber risk cover because they couldn't understand the underwriting forms to fill in. Is, is, is that typical? I mean, that, that makes me a little bit nervous. And if I were an underwriter, when I heard that, I would want to run the other way as quickly as I could. Um, so maybe we consider ourselves a bit of cowboys, but it is a lot more common than you would you'd want to know. So it is relatively common. So we've seen almost a dumbing down of proposal forms over time where we've had to try and get them as simple as possible with tick boxes and drop downs and stuff like that. Um, even in some instances, you're seeing some insurers underwriting based on how many data records do you have? What is your revenue? What industry are you in? Okay, let's close our eyes, put forward a price and hope for the best. So it's definitely not where you'd want it to be, um, but I am confident that we're headed in the right direction and it's something that we are focusing quite a lot on and seeing nice solutions and tools sort of coming down the pipeline to help get better understanding as far as the underwriting is concerned. Uh, at least we were also having a conversation before this around the extent of directors' potential liability. Um, what might be areas related to a cyber attack where the directors themselves might end up being on the hook? Well, the directors have a fiduciary liability to the company to manage the company with due care and skill. And part of that due care and skill now uh, includes cyber and cyber risk, cyber security. So it's important to know that cyber risk and cyber security is, no lo is, is not an IT thing. It's a board issue and it needs to be um, dealt with by the board properly. In fact, um, and anybody unsure of this must just look to the United States. Um, there are court cases in the United States where directors have been personally sued, um, shareholder derivative actions, class actions um, by shareholders of a company um, following uh, data breaches, cyber attacks that have resulted in the value of the company going down, uh, resulted in data being lost um, and, and losses sustained by the companies and they sue the directors personally because the board controls and manages and is responsible for the company. So cyber needs to be a board enterprise priority and the board is responsible, the directors are responsible for um, um, being, for, for, for looking at cyber very consciously um, and often, frequently, constantly, the cyber risk um, analysis must constantly up, be updated because the cyber risk is constantly changing. 
Um, in fact, your cyber insurance will require you to do that. Constantly update procedures. Policies and procedures need to be built in to corporations. Um, uh, staff need to be educated. One of the weakest links in corporations are staff, and particularly disgruntled staff. Um, so the directors are now at increasing risk of being held personally liable. So any corporations who do not have directors and officers liability insurance will want to cry if, if this happens to them. And um, very importantly, if the directors and officers do not possess the capability, the, the extent of their fiduciary duty under the Companies Act and under the common law will require the directors and the board to access um, specialist knowledge and expertise. So for example, employing what are now called cyber risk engineers. No, they don't build buildings. They're out there in the cloud somewhere. Um, specialists, <laughs> insurers, lawyers, working with teams of people to constantly make sure that that their, their, that their cyber security is resilient. So I have a five-year-old daughter, so if these cyber risk engineers are in the clouds, I think they may be fairies. Um, <laughs> yeah. now, Chris, we've also had conversations around the sort of reporting that can go to those directors and you know the extent of measures that provide no value whatsoever because they are provided by the CTO, the CISO, looking oh, this many pings are on, or, or hits on your firewall at the period. How do you manage, how do you bridge that gap where most directors aren't going to have the knowledge to understand cyber risk? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a fundamental problem, and I think I would just emphasize what, what Lisa said. This is a risk management problem. This is not a, a technology problem, per se. And it's also a people problem, because it's bad people leveraging technology to do bad things, and that's, that's really important to, to understand. And so I think first step is for people to take ownership of it at, at, at top of the house and to put a risk lens on it as opposed to, you know, typically we'll hear when people are reporting to, to, to the board, to the, you know, when the CISO is doing that, they throw up their arms, well, I informed them that there was, you know, on average there's 18,000 attempts to, to breach the firewall per month. Well, what do you want a senior person to do with that? That's, that's not very valuable. Um, and so what we see there is that people are conducting uh, assessments, and we saw that on, on the roadshow here in SA, that NIST and uh, CAT, the cyber assessment tool from the Federal Reserve, seems to be very popular, and that's a good place to start. Uh, you can find the, the low-hanging fruit, but again, that's just a classic, you know, risk and control assessment, red, amber, green, and, and so on. So we'd caution that's not really quantification. And then you have other things going on where people hire uh, third parties to do penetration testing, vulnerability testing, what we call red teaming or, or ethical hacking. And just one, one, one danger with, with that is, you know, when the, the, the red team finds something or breaches the firm, then some people might fly out of their seat and say, well, let's throw money at that and, and, and fix it. And again, we would say, stop, wait a minute. Do you really have a holistic view of all the vulnerabilities? So, so this is the challenge is that when you look at the staircase, people are on that first or second step. Um, but like any risk, we would want to get to some kind of quantification, get to some kind of uh, continuous loss distribution. So you could have a conversation which the board understands of this is our expected loss, this is our unexpected loss, here are the factors driving that, this is what the tail looks like, so a bad day, this, this, and this would happen. And I, you know, I, we're, we're not there yet in the US. You know, I, I speak closely to my colleagues in the UK, it's the same thing, and I think we heard that here in, in, in South Africa. Uh, Ryan, so clearly insurance can be a way to, to manage risk. 
but then we've also heard that insurers maybe well actually we've heard some, some from some insurers saying don't want to touch it with a barge pole fair enough but in the same way that you know, most people don't really want the big catastrophic risks, the big systemic risks, is there a way to take on some of the smaller little minor ransomware attack here? Mm-hmm. We'll pay to decrypt your, your systems or pay ransomware. Um, is there appetite to take on the more, more significant, more systemic risks? Um, I think there is. So we've seen, in fact, some of the bigger reinsurers are actually building sort of white label products for insurers to push out where they're pre-underwriting and stuff focusing on the smallest of the niche risks and stuff like that as opposed to the bigger risks. So there definitely does seem to be some level of appetite as far as that's concerned. Um, I think the problem that you still face with that is while you might be writing to lower limits and stuff, the problem with cyber and if we look at systems in general is that you could have a vulnerability that comes out in a common operating system like Microsoft or you've seen it on Intel-based chips, which will effectively you know, have an impact on the entire client base in any case. So you're still exposed to it a lot. Do the insurers gather enough of the data from their clients to be able to understand where the risks are coming from and then particularly when it gets aggregated to the reinsurers? It sounds like from the very modest proposal forms that the answer is probably not. Probably not and that's why I think we're also seeing a big drive behind these sorts of situational awareness tools which are gathering information around, for example, um, what type of infrastructure we're typically seeing companies having facing the internet who are their hosting providers, um, running through simulations to see, you know, if you had an AWS go down, how many of your clients are affected, uh, or potentially being, okay. how many of your clients are, can you hear me now? Uh, there we go. Um, there was a hacker. <laughs> I hacked myself. Um, so where was I? Oh, so we're seeing a lot of these situational awareness tools coming through where you're, you're picking up who are common hosting providers, what are common platforms and systems that we're seeing exposed to the internet, so that you can start getting some of those insights and some of that information. The, the one sort of problem we face a lot of that is that you're just looking at external facing network infrastructure and not looking at the internal network itself. And that seems to be the next sort of frontier to try and conquer because there is a lot of pushback from insurers where they don't necessarily want to give access to the internal network and in particular to insurers who they're a little bit wary of in the first place. And how do you, how does an entity decide how much the insurance they should be getting and what, what types of insurance? It, it feels like something where in the, the property asset space, there's are relatively well-established approaches and brokers are well-informed. Where are we in that journey? Um, I actually don't know. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bad joke. Um, you no, know so there's a whole room <laughs> full of actuaries, right? But I had to drop one actuary joke at some point in the presentation. Um, so... We're headed in a direction where we're starting to see some tools and platforms become available to try and guide that uh, that insight. Um, in the past, what we've seen over the last couple of years is where insureds, kind of at the advice of their brokers, are kind of going, okay, can you please quote on between 1 million and 100 million in increments of 2.5 or 5 million, and we'll kind of take a peg and see what price feels right. So I think we are seeing clients start to mature to go, okay, well, if we look at what our recovery time objectives are from a resiliency perspective, what do we anticipate would be our downtime costs? Um, if we look at the, the number of data records we have and we start comparing it to sort of reports like the Ponemon report and stuff like that, what do we anticipate could be the value there? But it is an area I think we'll have to see further development in. Maybe it's actually worth on touching on for, for the audience. Well, these claims, what, what is being paid for? When the policy performs? 
So as a quick sort of overview of, of what you could see and stuff, um, to my mind, I find it easiest to seeing the policy as comprising really three core main elements as such. Uh, the first one is the whole instant response process, and that is the IT specialists who are going to come in following an actual or a suspected incident and determine what happened, how do we contain it, how do we recover, and how do we determine what the actual severity of this incident was. You're also going to have the legal guidance on what you need to be doing from a regulatory perspective. So Poppy is somewhere on the horizon. I'm not quite sure how far. We hear very varying stories. But there are things like GDPR, etc., that you need to consider and which regulators you need to notify when. You've also got the PR and crisis comms costs to try and minimize and reduce any potential reputational damage. And then costs to look after your affected parties. So notifying them, providing the remediation services to try and prevent them suffering further damages. Uh, you've got the cyber extortion cover, which will look to determine the validity of an extortion demand, try and recover, and if needs be, even extend to negotiate and settle that ransom as well. If we move along onto the kind of the primary first party coverages, the big selling point on a cyber policy there, and the scary one from an insurer's perspective, is the business interruption and the increased cost of working. Uh, you've also then got, to the extent insurable by law, the fines and penalties. Poppy is still a little bit of a grey area, but if we take GDPR as an example, there's very few places where insurers are actually able to pay those fines and penalties. And then if you jump over onto the third party side, you've got uh, the liability covers. So from data being compromised or your environment used to cause attacks to others. We are seeing the coverages widen somewhat. So in particular with the adoption of cloud, we're seeing outsource service provider come in where you're now able to ensure your business interruption as a result of one of your service providers having a, a sort of a hack, whatever the case is, on their side. So that's one of the new developments coming in, as well as we're starting to see things like first-party financial losses starting to get insured and stuff. So it's a product that's evolving quite a lot, and one of the big kind of sort of drivers at the moment, and I think Silent Cyber is probably one of the reasons we're seeing it being driven, is around the physical damage side of things. So, you know, should the physical damage from a cyber attack be picked up under a cyber policy? I think the whole market's kind of pushed against it to a large degree because how do you quantify that? You're now opening yourself to, I hack into a hotel and switch off, I mean, a, a hospital and I switch off a life support system. Or I hack into a building and I cause an elevator to crash. Or a mine and a dump truck drive over the side of a cliff you know, these could be huge losses and stuff. So it's kind of what a cyber insurance policy is covering where it's going. Uh, Lisa, we touched there on some regulations and poppy and fines, and I think we didn't mention the cyber, I think it's still a cyber bill. Uh, in, in preparation, we had some conversation around the extent of class action being available in South Africa. Do you want to talk through what the legal costs and implications can be from, from a cyber event? From a cyber event. Well, just following on, on what Ryan said and, and what you asked about, the liability of directors, it, it hasn't happened yet, but I don't see any, I, I can foresee a claim being made against the board of directors on the basis that they didn't obtain sufficient adequate insurance cover. So that's something that needs to um, be considered. Poppy, kind of like gathering dust, it would seem, but um, Poppy's important. Um, and outside of Poppy, we are, aren't we, all regulating our systems and our practices in line with Poppy, so that when it does come in, we're not all rushing um, to to become compliant. The fines Poppy has um, breaches of Poppy can result in civil action, as class action, um, and 
um, fines and jail sentences. They're not, they're not huge. Um, the regulations haven't really um, attended to the extent of the fines, but if you look at what the fines under GDPR, uh, that's quite scary. Um, but yes, 12 months in jail, probably not what anybody wants to, wants to do. The Cyber Crimes and Cyber Security Bill also, um, it's, it's not really off the ground and it doesn't really affect you and I, with the exception of financial institutions and um, uh, electronic service providers, uh, your Vodacoms, your MTNs, your banks. Um, if any of, those, of their systems have been used or involved in committing a cyber crime, they have certain obligations under the Act um, to report and to notify, and a breach of those obligations results in, a, at this stage, a, a fine of 50,000 rand. So the fines are not big, but forget about the fines and forget about um, jail time. Reputational damage is enormous, and that can break companies and, and has done um, over, abroad. So companies don't have the financial ability not to attend to this. So we, we, we spoke about the, the range of ways that the cyber can hit you, the range of ways you can get attacked, the, the, the interconnectedness. I mean, Chris, the, the assessment approaches you were leading on to, do they, does it cope with that or is that kind of you, you, you do this best you can and you, you hope the rest is sorted out somewhere else? You mean current? Um, yeah, current assessments just really take a linear view uh, of, of, of risk. So if you think of the NIST assessment, it's 500 lines, you're ticking and tying, do we have encryption? So a lot of these things are things happen in, in, in underwriting. But it doesn't really challenge the risk managers or management to talk about are these systems going to actually function, are these controls under duress? And it doesn't challenge you to really look at um, that interconnectedness, that type of, of resilience, it's very static. Uh, and I think one of the big issues we heard here in, in, in SA, which, which is right, is think about your vendor landscape. And I think you, you, you were touching on this and you know, everyone's moving to cloud. Um, your attack service increases probably geometrically the more vendors that you use. And typically you have thousands of vendors. So if you look at, for example, in the US, the, the target breach targets a large uh, uh, retailer. That was the air conditioning company that had finished the job and wanted to access the payment system. And then you know they suffered this breach of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of credit cards customers. And then they had this reputational damage, you know, the incident response, the payout and whatnot. Um, so again, the assessments are a good starting place, but I don't think it's, this is a new type of risk. And I think that type of assessment was worked perhaps well for the past, but I think using an old tool for new risk like this is, is probably not gonna work. Are there new tools, or are we still waiting? We spoke about how in the underwriting space a lot more is continuing. I mean, what will the future look like in terms of the assessment or quantification? So we think there's there's uh, an approach that, that we've been working with, uh, with with a number of clients, and that is really to move towards the realm of the social sciences to think about complexity theory and and, and network uh, science. So so when we think about the internet, everything's interconnected. You know, think of that concept, six degrees of, of separation, and you think of your business, your environment, et cetera, or even the entire market, and we're talking about systemic risk a, a little bit, is a complex system. 
So, so we're applying co complexity theory and cognitive mapping to get a more interconnected view of how do risks actually play out? What are all the uh, dependencies, those different points and blind spots that we didn't think about? So there might be a low-level system which doesn't get a lot of attention because we're all focused on the cloud, but perhaps that system ha is handling special data, very sensitive data, and it's uh, ranked green on, on the classic assessment. But we would only learn after the fact if it were breached, it might lock us up or lead to a horrendous reputational loss of, say, if it's PHI. Um, so, so we think we're, we're taking a completely different view of, of applying a different methodology, which probably more realistically describes this, this risk. And I mean, Ryan, there's, I guess, hopefully still relatively low claims. Therefore, in terms of data around building models, or we like to build, build models, you know, is there much data available to, to see what the, the risks have been like? Uh, from a local South African perspective, not really. So if we look at the regulatory and the legal sort of landscape, um, companies aren't required to notify and to avoid the potential reputational damage. We typically look to try and keep incidents as quiet as they possibly can and not share a lot of the information. Um, we are seeing an increase in the number of claims from our own sort of portfolio and book of business and stuff like that, but not uh, that we can draw any sort of major inferences from as such. Uh, I think once you see the legislation evolve and something like a poppy, whatever the cases come in, where you need to notify, there'll be a lot more information at hand. The other challenge that we face is that the risk carries on evolving. So, you know, five, ten years ago, ransomware was, you know, wasn't really a concept. Now it's quite rampant and there's new sort of attacks and things like that which are coming down the line, which are going to have different implications on business. So it's also a bit of a moving target that you're trying to model around. So we don't have data, we're probably not going to get much data, and when we do get it, it's going to be irrelevant. In short, yes. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, I'm going to move on to a series of, kind of quick-fire questions which I'm going to ask, and you guys can each or all uh, respond to them, and then we'll hand over to the audience to see if there are any other questions as well. Um, Start with you, Chris. What's the, the cyber event that you're most worried about? I think, uh, you know, big picture, it's some type of systemic event, which of course is hard to think about that which has not happened, but it's really that black swans. Um, we know black swans happen. Uh, a number of reinsurers have, have been vocal about this. And I think um, it would be some type of, if we think of a financial crisis, it would be some type of ransomware, or some type of malware, which would lock up the global financial system so we couldn't make payments. And that would eventually trigger some type of liquidity crisis, because you think if people are not going to perform on their derivatives, then the collateral support annexes are going to kick in, so think of 2008. Um, question is, would the, would, the, uh, credit rating, a, a, would the rating agencies be obliged then to downgrade people? Would that be fair if the whole financial system's locked up? So I think that's, that's a, uh, a major event that, that, that we could worry about. And then the other is maybe more idiosyncratic, and it happened a little bit to the NHS in the UK with NotPetya, and I think you touched on this, Ryan, is what we call MedJack. That's where a lot of these sophisticated systems, you know, MRIs, CAT scans, million-dollar machine, when GE built that, they never had security in mind. So it's up to the hospital or to the system to actually encrypt that because they're sharing data now with, with radiology, with, with the physician. Um, and there were cases due to not Petya because the way NHS got hit, people, they had to stop procedures right before people were going to go into surgery. So I would also worry about any type of attack that would affect the, the medical system. Uh, Lisa Ryan, any other ones? Or do you do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that 
I would agree. I think those are some of the big points is that a lot of the sort of aging technology wasn't designed with security in mind. So there are a lot of potential vulnerabilities there. Um, and it's not just ransomware where we have the potential for these sort of global sort of widespread incidents. We have seen on the Intel chips and stuff where those have inherent sort of vulnerabilities within them. Um, and some of the claims that we've seen from our side is uh, where hackers have actually broken into environments and tricked the update service into believing that an, a critical security up well a piece of malware was a critical security update and use that to actually promulgate their malware throughout that environment incredibly quickly can you imagine if a hacker gets that right to sort of like a microsoft level where you then have effectively it seems like microsoft is pushing out a critical security update and that affects all these systems around the world in a matter of hours so yeah there's i think it touches on it and that just you can unpack it further and further it becomes a little bit scarier okay next question ryan sticking with you why do we need lawyers to deal with cyber risk? <laughs> I think lawyers play a very important role in dealing with cyber risk because... <laughs> no, I think there's a lot of value to be added um, and from many different avenues. So if we look at the incident response process, for example, if something's going to end up in litigation, you want to have the attorney-client privilege on what information is coming forward. Um, guidance on what you need to do from the regulatory landscape because that's something which is changing on an ongoing basis and who do you notify how. These are high pressured, very stressful situations which can escalate and elevate very quickly so you do need to have a good handle on what you're saying, how you're saying it, when you're saying it and who you're saying it to and I think the, the legal fraternity brings a lot of value from that avenue and we are going to see a lot of these things going into sort of litigation and so forth down the road. One of the other avenues we're also seeing the legal fraternity play a good role in is helping with the policy definitions and structures and stuff to make sure that those sorts of basic building blocks are in place. Uh, Chris, I think last question before we move to the audience. Um, is cyber, and this came from someone else, is cyber a fad and a buzzword that would eventually just become a vanilla part of operational risk? That's a great question. Um, no, no, actually it was my question. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case. Um, so look, yeah, I mean, you hear cyber, 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 but take a look at the room. People are very interested. It is a new risk, and at the same time, it's an old risk. We've seen fraud and theft before. Uh, but this is the ultimate enterprise risk. It affects everything. You know, we just talked about it, systemic financial crisis that could be caused by damage um, that, that Lisa talked about in terms of uh, physical processes for, for, for Mondelay. Um, right now, we have information asymmetry. It is the IT and the information security guys who really understand the details and the technical pieces of this. So it's going to have to evolve and become part of the canon of operational risk, right? So that it's, it's again, bad people leveraging technology to do bad things. And as we get better data, better techniques, probably more clarity on the legal side and, and, and the regulatory side, it will become probably standard. We can't, can't ignore it, but I wouldn't say it's a fad. It's like maybe we're sort of seeing the birth of this new risk and the market struggling a little bit on how to cope with it. But that provides a lot of opportunity, whether if you're in the risk management space, legal space, actuarial, underwriting. So this is actually, in certain respects, a really exciting opportunity, I think, I think for, for everyone. Okay, right, let's see if there are any questions from the audience. I hope we have mics and I hope someone can get around the full room. Any questions? Yep, one over here. Hi, 
Hi there, um, I'm Annika from FNB. Um, I just have a quick question about your first example. So you said that um, there might be a loophole there where as, um, it's actually a, a war risk and therefore it wouldn't be covered by the policy. Is there any other organization, if that is the case, that they would have a claim against? For example, SASRIA, who ensures the special risks in South Africa. Um, and then the second question is, um, so I mean, all of us know that kind of law firms these days are under attack from cyber crim criminals. Um, and I think a lot of the companies, the law firms are quite small. Um, so tell me how widely available and affordable is cover for them in South Africa against cybercrime? Lisa, I think perhaps you can take the first and go the second and we'll hand over to Ryan. Okay. Um, the, if the cyber attack can be considered a war-like operation, it is possible to argue uh, that it could be excluded under the policy. And I think that that's why we're here, um, so that insurers can change their policy wordings um, to make way for such cover if that is a risk that they want to underwrite. Uh, and companies will be able to work around what they will then know is or is not covered. It will not be covered under a SASRIA policy because the SASRIA policy requires, like most policies, material damage. And at the moment, um, data and systems and clouds and networks are not considered tangible property. So that's a big thing that needs to get sorted out and resolved in the insurance space. And that is why it is absolutely essential that corporations have cyber liability insurance because the traditional policies are not okay. They don't provide that cover. Um, and even in the DNO space, in the directors and officers liability space, whilst you have cyber event extensions, they are not adequate for what we're talking about today. Um, and this is where I'm so glad I'm a lawyer and not an actuary because you have all probably got now a very difficult job because you have to quantify this risk. Ah. <laughs> 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 oh. So I, I just go away smiling. Uh, b before you go away, uh, <laughs> the, the, the second part of the question on the law firms and the... the let's say oh, yes, the law firms. So, yes. Um, sorry, what was the, the, the question? Are, are there the products available to protect yes, law yes, firms? Yes, um, yes, there are. Um, there are products to fit um, all sizes of corporation. Whether they are affordable or not, um, that's an economic business decision that only corporations can, um, can make. I'll give you an example. Weber Wenzel, in the early infant stages of cyber liability, data breach liability, um, I was called up by our exco and asked, do we need cyber insurance? I said, hell yes. Um, how much? And I went, am I an actuary or am I a lawyer? So. I said, how much is a piece of string? We have to take this year and assess our risk, which is what we did. Um, and at the time, I, it, 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 it seemed that was, that was what was available at the time. Today, that risk assessment will be 
of no use to man or beast. And so for that year, as most people do, we went for the cheaper cyber insurance option. And then when we properly assessed the risk and we got a better idea of where our risks were and um, the extent of, um, of our potential risk and liability, we then um, looked at purchasing better, more suitable and extensive cyber cover. I mean, Chris, it's, it's a common story of guys asking, what's, what's the ROI? How much cover do we need to use? It's, it's, it's expensive. You, know, you speak about quantification, but is there a way to, to rationally make the decision of how much cover you need and how much is worth paying? Premiums or ransom? <laughs> I, I was thinking of premiums. Yeah. No, so if we can get to the quantification, um, to the loss distribution, which again, we think we've, we've got a way to do that. Then you can have that conversation of getting to risk appetite, right? So you set the, the board sets a strategy, you execute on the strategy for whatever your, your business is, and then you have to determine what's your risk profile and what is your comfort level, level with cyber. And, and, and to Lisa's point, you really have to assess what is your exposure, you know, Moat and Castle, if you're using active threat hunting, et cetera, you know, what, what, what are you going to do to mitigate that, um, and then it, it's it's determining, you know, are you comfortable with a hundred million dollar loss, you know, severe but plausible? Or are you worried about tail risk? Um, you know, where where do you want that, that that cover? So, I think one of the key points, and Lisa's hit on that, you know, we we've got to get, we we can't have thoughtful business discussions if we don't get to the math, if we don't get to that loss distribution, to that quantification. It's just simply going to be qualitative, and, and we've, we've heard a lot of that where people just go for the cheapest option, and uh, you know, it's that'll be a challenge. I think Chris is glad he's actually not a lawyer. So, I had a question. Uh, so, when you're talking about cybersecurity, there's no mention which has been uh, referenced to like blockchain to, to, to the use of blockchain as a way to mitigate the risk which might uh, insurance might actually face. Do you ever are you begin to consider that as part of a mitigating uh, strategy or not? Uh, so a couple of years ago, I did a presentation on the seduction of the, the blockchain. Uh, that was before the price crashed down. But the question is, um, is blockchain a useful technology to manage the risk, of, of the manage cyber risk? I don't know if he wants to take that. So I think one of the biggest, well, Matt, and this is probably from my perspective, one of the biggest potential advantages we see with blockchain as far as managing the cyber risk is where there's a push to try and see if you can leverage blockchain to start managing digital identities. So you start being identified by your wallet ID as opposed to your ID number, your name, your surname, your contact details, etc. And that could leverage how much data you have to disclose to different companies, which would ultimately have an impact on how many different places your data could be compromised from. Um, as far as where it could further assist with the risk and managing the cyber risk, I think there are other sort of applications. I don't think we've necessarily unpacked them fully, but we will see those coming to the fore and coming to light over time. Can I add to that? What is very important, and, and um, blockchain's great, um, but what is very important is that the cyber security and resilience can never be a one-size-fits-all. So. What those steps, those NIST steps, um, you know, the uh, 
the, the duties that the board has, the steps that the board needs to take to um, ensure that it is not going to be, fall foul of its duties to its shareholders and the company and, and the employees. Those, anything that can mitigate the risk, can secure the organization more effectively, um, can educate staff better, anything is good as long as you're seen to be taking those steps. And so for your corporation, blockchain might be a really good um, system or, uh, to implement. Uh, in another setting, it might not. So it, it would have, it, it absolutely has to be um, industry and enterprise specific. Yeah, I, I would just add to that, you know, Blockchain is a very exciting technology, but I think we need to be careful. It's, it's, it's not maybe the panacea that people feel it is. And there's a, there's a lot of discussion about this in the U.S. Uh, that there's, if, if we look at the big picture with cyber risk, cybersecurity, that some people liken it to the Cold War between the Soviet Union and, and the United States. And so in your example, that for every, it's called sword and shield, for every weapon that the bad guys develop, you'll develop some type of defense. And once they realize you have that defense, they're gonna come up with a new weapon. And that, that's what was going on, right? So that maybe blockchain will work great for a few years, what have you, but then some type of new vulnerability or decryption technology will, will break that. So um, I guess it's job security <laughs> for all of us. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, I don't think there'll be one solution that'll really lock this down and we don't ever have to worry about uh, being being breached. Okay, there's a hand uh, back there. Apologies, just one more question after this one. Uh, thanks to the panel for a fascinating talk. I now understand why my internet access was blocked at the company for not doing my cyber security courses. Um, <laughs> but, just a question um, related to the, um, you know, the challenge in um, proving in a court of law if the event is uh, an event of war. I mean, how do, is there a definitive way to identify if a breach is in, an intentional breach? So I'm thinking of the Y2K risk. So prior to the year 2000, there was an inherent fear that you know, a whole bunch of electronics and TVs won't stop working or, or will um, cease to work because of some date switch and systems won't be able to handle the new um, change over to um, new kind of um, year counting systems. So, I mean, how do, uh, is, it, is it a definitive way in identifying whether or not a breach is almost an intentional breach by an individual or someone with um, bad intent versus inherent system kind of vulnerabilities that um, bring down an organization. You know, that's also a very great question. Because um, when we look at the US with this issue with the DNC server CrowdStrike and, and, and whatnot, for, for attribution. I think for lesser sophisticated attacks, you, you can tell, you know, a disgruntled employee drops in a logic bomb, some type of, um, not mediocre, but you know, mid-level malware, it's kind of that, that obvious stuff. But then the really sophisticated stuff, that's very difficult. And to make things even more complicated, we've heard defense attorneys in the US argue about this in regards to the Zurich case um, or, or other cases, 
when Snowden left the NSA and took all of those things, and, and you know there, there, there were the different drops and then WikiLeaks as well, um, there's the Vault 7 drop, which revealed that the CIA had developed code so that they could hack and create breaches but leave electronic fingerprints so it looked like either the Russians or the Chinese or, or, or the North Koreans. So any good defense attorney is going to present that kind of information and say, just because there's Cyrillic code, let's not be naive. That could have been a Western intelligence agency covering their tracks and trying to blame the other guy. Um, because, I mean, a whole other topic which we don't have time for is all the economic espionage that's going on as well. And cyber is a fantastic medium for that. So I think the answer to your question is for the very sophisticated attacks, it, attribution is going to be very difficult, not just in the court of law, but I think for a lot of intelligence agencies, frankly, as well. So speaking of running out of time, we are basically out of time. I'm going to ask each of you 30-second last takeaway that you want to leave the audience. Let's start with you, Ryan. Um, so, I mean, I think briefly it's just that we, we need to uh, appreciate and understand that the cyber risks are very real. Just because we're not seeing a lot of it in the media and in the press and stuff South Africa, it doesn't mean that South African companies aren't very much exposed to it. Um, there is good development being done as far as better understanding the risks, how do we go about mitigating it, but it is, you know, kind of fighting an ongoing battle that will carry on to evolve. Um, there's a lot of things we can do around better understanding what the actual risk is and then trying to sort of determine how much that exposure is, what companies should buy. I think cyber insurance is a great solution in looking to address those those risks that companies face. Um, and you know sort of providing a good mechanism to respond to incidents in a in a positive manner which is ultimately going to protect those who are affected and then having good resources to to work on the ground and to make sure that the companies are back up and running as soon as they can be trying to limit the potential damages that they would suffer lisa your 30 seconds takeaway um so if i could just leave you with one message <clears throat> just to reiterate that the cyber threat is a board and enterprise issue and it's not just your as your corporation's issue you could be the victim of a cyber attack and suffer just as much loss and uh, accrue just as much liability so if we we are very guilty often of saying it will not happen to us well it could without you even knowing it without it being it intended the other thing that one must remember is when poppy comes in poppy creates essentially strict liability for data breach so fault doesn't come into play um, and all of these things need to be looked at and cyber needs to be looked at holistically from an actuarial point of view from a board of directors point of view from an IT point of view from a legal point of view from a loss point of view it's not just a little issue it's absolutely enormous and then insurance is absolutely vital and that includes professional indemnity insurance if any of you are consultants and consult in the risk environment and in relation to cyber risk Chris last view yeah I would just emphasize that this is really a risk management problem and as we talked today we don't know yet what the big systemic event looks like. We know that we have systemic risk. The world's becoming more interconnected. You know, think of our mobile phones, our networks and, and, and whatnot, and we're so dependent on these, on these technologies that um, that should really be a wake-up call and a call to action, both for your own personal security or at work and, and what was emphasized here, but also thinking from, from the risk perspective um, what that means to have a systemic cyber event. 
Chris, Lisa, Ryan, thank you very much for attending us, especially to our two guests. We have a very modest uh, gift for the, the guests, not for you, Chris. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for your participation.